Second John, today we're going to be in verses 4 again and going through verse 7. You may be wondering, why did we start with two truths and a lie? Why did we have that as our little mixer? That's because essentially that's what our outline for this morning is, is three walks. We're going to look at three walks. The truth walk, the love walk, and the erroneous walk. And I want it to be clear that we're not promoting all three of those as walks that we should walk in. Two of those are things we should walk in. One of those are things we should avoid. So two truths and a lie is essentially our outline for this morning. We'll start by reading this letter again in its entirety. It's a short one, so we'll read it uh, this week as with last week. So 2 John, the second of John's letters, written to the elect lady, which is a metaphor for the church there, the gathering there. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. As we look at this outline for this morning, the two truths and a lie, the first is the truthful walk, the second will be the loving walk, and the third will be the erroneous walk, the truthful walk. In the first verse of our section, verse four, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. We hit this primarily last week. We talked about the nine different ways that truth impacts the believer. But today I just wanna highlight that Truth is supposed to characterize the conduct. That's your first fill in the blank. Truth is supposed to characterize the conduct, the walk of a believer. And again, just reviewing from what we talked about last week, God is always true. God is always true. Numbers 23, 19 reads, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God is always true. And accordingly, that which God communicates, his word, is perfectly in line with who he is, which is not a liar, but a 
true God. So God's word is our source of truth. In John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So accordingly, our actions are to be in line with that which is true, as we talk about walking in the truth, as we look at 2 John. So we're supposed to be walking in line with that which is true, and also it's important to note that truth is not a subjective, it's not an individual, it's not a personalized reality. So this, this conversation of your truth versus my truth is not really a sensible conversation because truth isn't dependent on us. Praise the Lord. Otherwise, we'd wake up and something that was true yesterday was different because we no longer believed it. Truth is not contingent upon us believing it. So love, as we combine these concepts of truth and love, walking in the truth, walking in love, love, quote unquote, that is not informed by and aligned with what is true is meaningless at best and opposed to God at worst. So best case scenario, truth that isn't informed, or love that isn't informed by the truth is meaningless, but worst case, it actually is potentially opposed to God. Because again, God is true. God is always true. So a question that you'll loop back to when we do table discussions at the end is why is it important to keep verse four close to verse five and six? Because again, we talked about verse 4 last week, but we're reminding ourselves of it because it's important to keep those connected. So you'll, you'll talk at tables about why that's important. And also talk about why might someone want to embrace what the Bible teaches about love, but reject what the Bible teaches about truth. So that's the first walk, the truthful walk. The second walk is the loving walk in verses 5 through 6. Again, reading those. And now I ask you, Dear lady, again, speaking to the whole church, important to realize he's speaking to the whole church because otherwise this is an awkward love letter. Um, Dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this love that we, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. This is the commandment that was from the beginning. And last week we did that kind of question exercise where you generated questions at tables and kind of used that to get our minds prepared to be studying this book. I hesitate to even call it a book. It's a, it's a paragraph, this letter. But one of the questions was, what does it mean when we hear from the beginning, this commandment from the beginning? Are we talking about the beginning of creation, the beginning of time, the beginning of, of what? And I think John 13, 31 through 35 is really helpful for that. This is Jesus speaking. John 13, 31 through 35. Words are up on the screen. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Again, John recording this in his gospel 
Certainly, commands to love are not new to the New Testament. Those exist in the Old Testament also. But the specific language here highlights that something new is happening, some pivot is happening. And this is Jesus speaking on the night before his arrest that would lead to his crucifixion. So it's a fitting time to be pondering this passage as we enter after Palm Sunday today and prepare our hearts for um, Good Friday. It's fitting to think about that seismic pivot and this new command, this summation of all the commands are that we certainly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, but also that we love one another. And that is going to be the distinguishing mark of a Christian, of this new covenant that's beginning. So apparently when John says from the beginning here in 2 John, this commandment that was from the beginning, he has in mind the night before Jesus' crucifixion. So essentially he's speaking of the beginning of Christianity, which is summarized in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. So that's what we refer to when we refer to the beginning here. Another thing to know also looking at John's writing is that this is love in action. When we read love one another, this isn't just an abstract feeling. When we look at 1 John 3, 16 through 18, would someone be willing to read that nice and loud? Not all at once. What does this passage teach us? Yes. As opposed to? Inaction. Inaction, yeah. That's that's good. What else do we see from this passage? It's a sacrifice. Yeah. Not just words. Love and truth are correlated strongly throughout Scripture, but yeah. Any other observations from this passage? A question that you'll reflect at at tables is, why is it, that is supposed to say so, why is it so important? To remember that love must be tangibly expressed, not merely emotionally felt. You'll read that verse again. I'm going to ask, are there areas that you can grow in your actions of love? That's supposed to be of. And then take a moment to think through the three or five people closest to you. How are you loving them in action? It's really easy, even as we talk about love, even as we talk about love in action, to be like, yes, I agree with the fact that love has to be in action. But until it gets really personal with who are those people in closest proximity to you right now, until you get to faces to this love, it's really easy to theoretically think, oh yeah, I'm really tangibly loving and practically loving people, but then you think about, yeah, but I definitely don't love my roommate, I'm not really loving this person, I'm not really loving this person, and those are the three people you're closest to. So we have to think about those in close proximity to us. So love is to be in action, but one other thing I want to highlight in this uh, verse, actually two other things, is, is this a command, commandment, or is it commands? Because if you look at those verses, John kind of flip-flops. He says, uh, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, plural. But in verse 5, he says, a new commandment I give to you. 
So is it commands or commandments? And then verse 60 says, this is the commandment. So is it singular or is it plural? What are, we, what are we talking about here, John? John, are you confused? Is there one command or are there multiple commands? John interchanges between the singular and the plural, but I think Paul provides a helpful summary as far as why John is able to do that. Take a look at John, or sorry, Romans 13, 8 through 10. It's up on the screen. Would someone read that nice and loud for us? Excellent. Thank you, Noah. What does this passage teach us? I had a friend that could make the cricket sound. Yeah, absolutely. It's you boil all the commandments for long enough and what you'll have left in the pot is a, a glob of love and it expresses itself in all the commandments but central and core to each of those commandments regarding how we relate to others is that we should love our neighbor. It's a remarkable statement in verse 9 and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how is it that John is able to flip-flop between commandment and commandments? It's because he's speaking about the commandment, love one another, we love our neighbor. So it's a summary of the other commandments. The ultimate commandment, love one another, is the fulfillment of the other commandments. So a question for reflection and also discussion later is gonna be, how is it both a comfort and a challenge that love one another fulfills the whole law. Because this is both a comfort and a challenge. So think through how that is a comfort and how that is a challenge. I also want to highlight something that it's important to realize, especially in our day when the phrase love is love is a mantra. We're to be loving in truth and not all love, quote unquote, not all love is created equal. The statement, love is love, doesn't necessarily mean anything. I want to point you to one passage. Turn with me, actually, to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And we'll see that love needs to be properly directed. That's a fill in the blank there. Love needs to be properly directed directed. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. There's five ways highlighted here that love, quote unquote, can go wrong. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, 
not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Again, we see truth and love held in close proximity. But in these verses, these seven verses, five ways, five times love shows up. And it's showing that just love in and of itself, in this abstract concept detached from truth, is not in and of itself virtuous. Because they're loving self, they're loving money, they're loving pleasure. They're not loving good, so failing to love the right thing, and they're not loving God. It's a powerful passage that illustrates a lot of what we observe today, even temptations in our own hearts. So reflecting on that is a question, how does this passage help us realize that not all types of love are legitimate or virtuous? And how have you observed this truth today? I'm sure we've all seen this passage play out in those around us, perhaps in our own lives How have we seen this play out? So, first two walks. Truthful walk, the loving walk, and now we turn to the erroneous walk, walking in error. Verse 7, again in 2 John, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. We're going to look at verse 7 today, and then we're going to look at the rest of the chapter in two weeks. Verse 7 is kind of introducing what follows. We'll look at the results or the consequences of this error and the appropriate response to this error um, later. But today we'll be digging into what exactly was this error? Why is this so significant? Why is this the, the... thing that John brings up. First off, deceivers. Again, we are confronted with the image that we used last week. For those of us that were on the wade, we're familiar with a path. We're familiar with a path in the dark. Anyone that's walked in a path is familiar with this, not just those that went on the wade. But we're familiar with what it is to, to veer off that path and to get, to get lost, to get confused. Well, there's something that perhaps most of us have not spent much time doing, and that's navigating by the stars. When you're looking up at a night sky, obviously the the stars provide a useful tool for navigation, especially those in, um, in, in, in the sea, on the sea, those navigating ships and such. But there is a tragic error that happens when you try to navigate by a planet instead of a star. Because one day, that star is in one place, and the next day, that star is in another place, and the next day, that star is in another place, and before long, you are not going in the right direction. So it's important that you navigate by stars and not by planets. And interestingly, that is the word used for deceivers, false teachers. When you think about uh, wherever the word in Scripture used, our English translation is deceivers or being led astray, it's coming from that root word planetes. It's, it's what we now call planets, but they were, astronomy was, oh, they're wandering stars. They're stars that were once in one place, once in another place. 
We can see that in uh, Jude 12, 13. Your translation probably brings it out more clearly. Um, Jude 12, 13 where Jude, speaking of false teachers, also says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, lots of powerful language against these folks, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their open shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So a deceiver, this wandering star, a deceiver is someone who leads someone away from the truth, leads someone away from the truth. Unlike a star that's fixed, it's in the same place each night, it's shifting, it's moving, it's, it's not a good place, a good point of reference to navigate from. So a deceiver is someone who leads someone away from the truth, Wandering from the truth themselves, they bring others with them as they go astray. So not only are they themselves wandering, but they also then become a guide for others that steer others away from the truth. And we just need to say, it's probably, it has been said before, but bad theology hurts people. We often think of theology as this abstract thing that we don't have to worry about that doesn't really intersect with our lives and maybe we'll talk about it on a Sunday or maybe I'll read a super spiritual Christian book about theology one day. But no, theology lands in our lives in daily practice, whether or not we call it theology. And having erroneous and wrong theology has negative results in our lives. It hurts people. John, 2 John verse 7 introduces a major error with deadly consequences. So what is this error? For many deceivers, we talked about what are deceivers, they've gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Why was this such a big deal? Well, first we need to realize that just because something sounds spiritual does not make it true. Just because something sounds spiritual does not make it true. We must check everything by scripture, not by how it might seem holy or quote-unquote logical or agreeable, Our point of reference is God's word, not our own sense of what's right and what's wrong. And these deceivers were coming in and bringing in error that said Jesus only seemed to come in the flesh. And they had potentially logical and seemingly good reasons, especially when you pair that with Greek philosophy that says flesh equals bad, spirit equals good. So therefore, if God came to earth, he's obviously good, so he couldn't have come in the flesh which means, see, Jesus only seemed to come in the flesh. Aha, yay, it saved us from bad theology. Except for that's not what Scripture reveals, and that's not what Jesus said about himself. So it doesn't really matter what someone might think seems more spiritual or what might seem to go better with their preconceived notions. The question is, does it match up with what God has revealed about himself? False views of Christ lead to false gospels. False gospels lead to eternal separation from God. Our view of Christ must be biblically informed or else we will inevitably veer into error. We don't get to make up a doctrine of who Christ is. We have to go off what Scripture says. And these folks were making up what, what they believed about Christ, merging error with truth. So this was not a new error 
this, this was a relatively new error, but it wasn't new to Second John. He'd written about it in First John already. So this was a new and a fast-spreading error. John had already written about it in First John 2, 18 through 27. We won't read that whole section. But First John 4, 1 through 3, we will read. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, a warning here. The warning is that secular philosophy and biblical theology should not be mixed. Secular philosophy and biblical theology should not be mixed. What we look at in 2 John as we read this verse is the rise of what's called docetism. Most have probably not heard of docetism, but it was an early second century error that was starting to pop up, obviously even in the first century, because this, this letter would have been written 90, 95 AD, so we're almost to 100 AD. And by the second century, this error was in full force, as false teachers had attempted to merge those Greek philosophies, the teachings of Plato, with the teachings of the apostles and come up with this mostly sounding Christian religion, but it had some critical errors. When we think about mixing things, we know that water and oil don't mix. But you can drink water and you can drink oil. If it's like olive oil or something, it wouldn't be good, but they just don't mix. They're going to be layered. So both are good, but they don't mix. On the other hand, ammonia and bleach shouldn't be mixed either, but those are both bad. You wouldn't want to drink either of those. But now on the other hand, apple juice and rat poison. One of those is good, one of those is bad, but a little bit of rat, rat poison in your apple juice will make you not want to drink that apple juice. In the same way, biblical Christianity with just a dash of false teaching, just a dash of Christological heresy, just a dash of a, a twisted view of Christ, is now a spiritually deadly and certainly not saving gospel. So to merge something that's good and pure and right, the truth of God's word, with something that is damning, a belief that Jesus isn't actually fully God and fully man, is to be left with a deficient and non-saving gospel. So these false teachers were enamored by the teaching of Greek philosophy, so they found a way to merge ideas, to merge these ideas from different philosophers and the apostles' teaching. So the result was docetism. This is the belief that the humanity of Jesus was not genuine. He merely seemed to be human. Dokeo is the word that means to think or to seem in Greek. So docetism is seemingism is basically how we would say that in English. It's, he, yeah, he, wasn't, he wasn't really a man. He just seemed to be a man. It, everyone, it looked like he was a man, but actually he wasn't. Thankfully, the Bible goes out of its way to clear, clearly communicate that was not the case. So another quote, docetists insisted on the deity of Christ, which again, that sounds spiritual. Like they're trying to hold up the fact that Jesus was God while rejecting his humanity. To the docetists, material existence is inherently evil, and the view which was the view proposed by Plato, 
They believed that the Son of God appeared on earth as an illusion. Jesus had no human body, could not suffer or die a real death. Docetic theology has considerable implications for our understanding Jesus of Nazareth and the theological interpretation of his death and resurrection. Most basically, it rejects the possibility that Jesus experienced the breadth of human existence, including pain, eating, drinking, and hunger. Most significantly, docetic theology undermines the historic value of Jesus' virgin birth, crucifixion, bodily resurrection, and his assumption of sin in the flesh. Romans 8, 3. If we separate these things, if we try to have, say, Jesus is just God but not man, he's no longer able to be in our place as a sacrifice for sin. I realize that in our day, in conversations with classmates or coworkers, more likely we're engaging on the other side of this, which is someone that's rejecting the deity of Christ while saying, yeah, sure, he was a man. That is just as much an error, but in this day, the error was on the other side, which is saying he was just God, he wasn't actually a man. Both are errors. Both erode the foundation of the gospel, which is God is fully man, fully God. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and able to stand in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. So question for table discussion is, in what ways and categories do secular ideologies and philosophies tempt believers to reject, neglect, minimize, or compromise essential truths of God's word? How would you lovingly correct someone who says they are a Christian but has adopted false views of Jesus? Lastly, in this section, we'll look at the Antichrist. The word there in verse 7, for such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Lowercase a, so not capital A, not the ultimate Antichrist. But not only are these teachers deceiving others, but underlying this deception is that they are teaching that which is directly against Christ. So not only are they leading others to say astray, they're going and teaching something that's directly opposite, anti-Christ. These are antichristos. They are in active opposition to Christ. They proclaim a message of heresy and error, although it's clear that John anticipates the coming of the eschatological embodiment of evil, the capital A antichrist. Here in 2 John, he affirms that his forerunners have already made their debut. They're already on the scene. They're here. His concern is that their false message and attack on the person of Jesus Christ, they are against the Lord. That was a quote from Daniel Aiken. So when we talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, usually we're talking about that at Christmas time. When we talk about Jesus born as a baby, good that we celebrate that. I'm not this and that at all. But right now, we're in Easter season. We're preparing for celebrating Resurrection Sunday and remembering all that was accomplished on Good Friday. So as we think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we have to clearly affirm that God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, took on flesh. He became a man. He was born as a human. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Another quote from the biblical doctrine, while the human nature that the Son of God received in his incarnation allows him to experience humanity, he does not exist as two persons. He is but one person with two natures, the divine and the human. Substitutionary atonement, the fact that Jesus was able to be a substitute for us on the cross, 
demands that Jesus actually be a man, not merely seeming to be a man. If Jesus only seemed to come in the flesh, then he only seemed to die on the cross. And if he only seemed to die on the cross, then he only seemed to pay for our sins. Our very salvation and forgiveness from sin depends on this reality, that Jesus really did come in the flesh and die a real death in our place and raise from the dead, proving victory over sin and death. Two verses that we'll turn to. There's a lot more we could turn to. I highly recommend all of Dan Johnson's sermon that we just listened to in first service, but especially that last five minutes, he just goes through verse by verse and really hammers this point. So it was, I was praying to the Lord that just the way that God orchestrates the communication of his word on a Sunday morning. But Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is worth thinking about, especially this week as we prepare our hearts to remember and celebrate Christ's sacrifice. So at tables, you'll discuss the incarnation. Jesus truly being a human, come in the flesh, is so important for our salvation. People today are apt to deny the deity of Christ while still accepting his humanity. Why are both errors so dangerous? So in conclusion, theology matters. We think of it in the abstract often, but it matters. We must be on guard constantly against anti-Christian and deceptive views of Jesus Christ because only the true gospel, only the true gospel is the saving gospel. I said this last week, the gospel, the good news, is only good news if it's true. So if you're believing a false version of the gospel, whatever it is, it's not a saving gospel anymore. It's not good news. You must be believing the biblical gospel. So next week, we're going to look at the consequences of embracing false views of Christ and also the appropriate response to these heretical teachers. Talk about that in two weeks as we wrap up this study in verses 8 through 13. In leaving off, just thinking, what is one challenge or encouragement or help that you're taking away from this verse? So as we think about all that Christ did for us on the cross, and remember the central importance that indeed he was fully God, but as he was fully God, he was also fully man. We we have to let that truth just be a source of worship for us, this week especially, but every day, because this is bedrock truth for our salvation. In approaching doctrines like this in God's word, it's, it's almost intimidating to come and say, okay, a pastor that teaches on the incarnation of Christ and the central importance of that. How on earth do I boil down how important that is for us as believers? It's impossible. This is, this is bedrock reality for us as believers, so we have to cling to this. Allow me to close this in prayer, and then we will break in tables, spend those times going back through those questions, And also spend a little bit of time at the end as tables praying for each other. Share what's going on in your lives. Any major prayer requests that we can be bringing before the Lord on each other's behalf. So let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the clarity of it. That we don't have to guess at what you are like. And we thank you so much for the clarity of knowing that indeed Jesus Christ is fully God. Fully your son. Fully a member of the Trinity. And yet fully human, that he was born 
in the likeness of sinful flesh like the rest of us who've only known sin in, in our flesh. And we thank you that he lived a perfect life despite being human when we would think human necessitates sin, but he proved elsewise as he lived a life that we never could and died in our place. Lord, we also marvel at the fact that as Christ took on flesh, he did so permanently. And he's not now only existing spiritually, but that he is physically in heaven and we are awaiting his physical return and we look forward to a physical eternity with our Savior. We are blown away and humbled that you would send your son as a man to die for our sins. We are undeserving. We are certainly unable to do anything to contribute to that salvation. So we are left in a posture of worship and gratitude and thankfulness. And in light of all that, Lord, help us to just cling to your word amidst whatever the new error may be, the error of 2024, if you terror, whatever, tarry, whatever, whatever the error is that we need to navigate with our friends or family, help us to be gracious and loving as we cling to your word and help others see the wonderful, life-giving truth of knowing a Savior that is both fully God and fully man and able to stand in our place. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ and we pray. Amen.